Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have as my return guest, the CEO of Gap in the Matrix, Martin Lucas. Martin, welcome. Hey, Marcus. Thanks for having me back on. I'm excited today. Excellent. Just give people a couple of minutes on what you've been up to in the last year, because I know that you've made incredible strides, not only in your business, but also in tackling the elephant in the room, which is why customers are not getting what they want. And uh, today's episode is really about how we pull the house of cards out from under the, uh, the legs of traditional marketing and sales and the lack of alignment therein. So over to you. Yeah, cool. So super quick, we spent four years doing an R&D project, looking at the biggest gap that we'd identified, which was why don't humans understand one another, which meant we looked at every dimension about how humans make decisions, what they're looking for in experiences, what generates decisions and all the things that sit around this. You're talking about the psychology of decision making, the mathematics, economics, the science. And after those four years of R&D, we took the business to market. And as you just mentioned, the past year has been very successful for us. So we're working with some automotive companies, we're working in fashion, we're working in jewellery, we're working in B2B software, and our average results are generally 18 to 26% is what we save any business on its advertising and marketing spend. And then from an efficiency, from a real a revenue and sales growth point of view, then you're talking anywhere between 3%, which is like 62 million for one of our clients, up to 21% for smaller businesses. So everything we do is driven by data, but what sits behind it is the human side of how humans feel, think, behave, and why they do what they do. Right. So let's slaughter the first fatted calf, which is big data. Why is there such a huge gap between the promise of big data and the actual outcome? I th- it's a great question, first of all. I think that as we look at all of these gaps about what this, this house of cards of the old school or traditional advertising and marketing system is that we're starting to godify big data in the same way that we've godified software over the past 20 years. And what I mean by that is everybody's using this keyword of data, thinking that they're going to get an answer from it. But all that happens with big data is that people are working incredibly hard. And I know a number of projects that are going on where it's a 20 million deal for an agency here and a 50 million deal here. And we're working to combine data. That's what big data is, right? They're trying to combine all these different data sources so they can do things like single customer view. Right? And a single customer view doesn't mean that anybody does anything with it. It just means that humans have control or perceived control within the marketing system. So big data is not solving anything. At best, it's moving the needle by 0.1% at times for people. And that's the system that we're in, that we, we spend huge amounts of money just to move the needle by 0.1%. It's not making a difference. It's just costing a lot of money. I was at a dinner Christmas before last, and Forrester was saying that only 7% of companies that are using big data are doing it well, which is a vast amount of inefficiency with the other 93%. So tell me this, why is it though that there's this promise that you're going to get the single customer view, you're going to be able to splice and dice the data in order to drive better consumer behavior, but in the end, all you're getting is just an added cost and you know, we only have to look at the waste that goes on in digital marketing. You know, 98.81% of all advertising on Google and Facebook and the like is wasted yeah. Yeah. Uh, to get one click or fewer. And that means zero clicks. So what, why is it that the promise has uh, been so badly missed? 
I think it's an assumption, right? Is that there's there's a lot of there's a lot of propensity models that go behind big data. So a propensity model that that says because Marcus as a customer, as customer 1,964,300, whatever, right? As an individual customer, because he shopped last Tuesday and added something to his basket, it means that he's going to do the same thing in the following Tuesday. Or you've got lots of people associating things where because Marcus bought this product, he's likely to buy this other product. And big data helps fuel that. But what it's doing is just fueling something that doesn't work. And that's your 98.81%. Why it's acceptable to businesses is that people believe that big data is going to give them the answers to why customers are doing what they're doing, whereas the actual problem is they don't know why customers do what they do. So they use big data as an excuse, and because everybody's doing it, you're in that classic kind of herd mentality behavior, and that's why it becomes a big gap. I mean, you know yourself from when you had Martin on as a guest talking about small data and talking about relevant data, right? It's just a fabulous example where big data isn't isn't the example and the things that we'll run through today is is about relevance it's the relevance selecting the right types of data that matters more than just doing it for the sake of it and that was a reference to my interview with uh, martin lindstrom who wrote a fabulous book incidentally or several fabulous books but one of them was called small data and definitely recommend that you listen to that and read his book one of the other things i see happen an awful lot in marketing agencies is this obsession with coming up with a persona Dave the backpacker who buys hemorrhoid cream on a Wednesday and eats cornflakes with Baileys on it. And I've heard you say several times that that's fine if you're Dave, but if you're Fred, his next door neighbor, and they kind of fit into the same archetype, it doesn't necessarily work. Or the same persona. Why is it that personas are so widely used, but so useless? you're opening up a a huge box of tricks, right? There's a huge door that you've just opened because you're talking about personas, you're talking about statistical analysis, you're talking about sentiment analysis, you're talking about influencers. It it all's driven by the same thing. Humans don't understand one another. And I, I don't mean that in a trite way. I mean, in a really deep way, humans don't understand each other. If you think about your day-to-day interactions with any other human, particularly your, your partner to make the male joke that I always jo- joke about, my wife needs to tell me really explicitly and directly what she's actually saying to me. Because as a man, I can't understand the emotional cues that she's given me, right? Because I'm too simple because I'm a man. And that's part of the problem of what's going on with it. So to start answering your question and, and picking that apart, right, is you've got personas where it ends up describing the individual, and so it's over-prescriptive. You know, Dave um, spends his time on Snapchat and he's got two kids, et cetera, et cetera. And I see that all the time in B2B, like the personas describing the individual. So when it comes to somebody actioning it, they end up actioning it with it's over-prescribed. Or when you go to the other side of the fence, which I find quite common in the consumer world, is you end up just describing a general area. Our customers have got an income of sixty-five to 75,000 and they live in this area and they tend to be rural. So neither of them are actually actionable based on what the human wants from the interaction. But the biggest problem being is that they're describing the person, not what the person wants from the product or service that you're trying to sell them. And that's the same issue with sentiment analysis and the statistical gaps as well. But let me just pause for a second. Did that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. You've touched on something or two things. Minded of one of my favorite Mark Twain quotes which is when we remember that we're all mad, the mysteries disappear and life stands explained. And I I think to a large extent, Mark Twain, Oscar Wilde, and uh, Philip Larkin have got the world banged to rights. Philip Larkin's poem, they fuck you up, your mum and dad. They don't mean to, but they do. They fill you with all the faults they had. 
and they add some extra just for you. We're programmed in so many different ways throughout our childhood and throughout our life to have biases. We filter the world. We run these heuristics, which are shortcuts to idiocy in my experience, because uh, what we tend to do is we uh, make assumptions based on very limited information. And the net result of that is that decisions are often very poor. And a really good example of this, I interviewed a a chap called Shelton Banks, who grew up in the very poor area of Chicago. And uh, he dragged his uh, way up to becoming a VP of sales for uh, JP Morgan. Mm. And what he recognized was that when they were splicing and dicing the data, they were ignoring predominantly black areas uh, because they thought that they were poor. And the mistake that they were making was they didn't really understand how people in those neighborhoods uh, operated. They didn't trust banks. They didn't know how to open a checking account. So they operated in a cash economy. And the data that JP Morgan was using was telling them that the householder might have a $9,000 a year income. Whereas in fact, the grandfather might have a $9,000 a year income, but he had his two sons and a daughter living with him with a couple of grandchildren. And between them, they had a quarter of a million dollars worth of capital. And the, the problem was that they misunderstood those people because they made assumptions. So let's start with the assumptions that you're seeing marketers make and why they are so misguided. There's a number of different ways that marketeers are, are genuinely trying to solve the problem that you just described, right? But their starting point has always got a limitation to it. We're godifying data and we're godifying software for all the answers, right? So For example, we've got a client at the moment that we're dealing with a huge global set of jewelry brands, and they did some sentiment analysis, right? And the sentiment analysis, typically, it costs 75 to 125,000 pounds, right? And what you're trying to find out from a sentiment analysis is who your customers are. How do they think? How do they feel? Right? But the problem with the sentiment analysis is that it's generally done with analysis of social media. And all you're getting is peak emotions, positive and negative, right? When people are talking about your actual product, and that's how they derive the sentiment from it, right? And from this 75 to 125K project, the biggest summary was about jewelry, customers are looking for meaningful stories. And I was like, I could have told you that in two minutes. I wouldn't have charged you anything for doing it. And the thing about it was that the huge deck, right? It's like 90 slides getting to this point about customers are looking for meaningful stories, right? When you look at that, it's exactly the same problem that you've got with personas. Beautiful decks, 60 slides, 50 slides, 80 slides. There's nothing you can actually do with it because you can look over all this technical insight that's in that deck. And so now you know your customers want meaningful stories. What's your next question? How do I tell meaningful stories? Therefore, what was the point of doing the whole thing, right? That's the, that's the sentiment analysis gap. It's based on a whim. And this idea of the whim is the stuff that you're really getting at there, right? So let's discuss what the whim is. When you look at creative communication and the idea of the agency model in itself, a lot of it was traditionally anchored around creativity, right? That's the idea, the creativity of the customer, right? What we've lost that connection with is actually understanding who that customer was. Most creativity is done on a whim. Right? It's not based on why the customer wants to buy. It's based on, oh, we did some sentiment analysis. Somebody wants a meaningful story. Okay, we don't know how to interpret that. Oh, a creative bill in the corner just had an idea, so let's just run with that. And that's how campaigns get created. It's based on the whim of an individual. It's not based on 
the science. It's not based on the customer. It's not based on the meaning that your product holds. And that right there is the biggest gap in the world is that take your example, right? About it doesn't matter how much income somebody necessarily has when it comes to buying a product, right? Because people reward themselves in lots of different ways. You get people that will do everything they possibly can to save up and buy a luxury product. They might buy a Louis Vuitton bag and only be making 18,000 a year, but that's the thing that matters more to them than anything else. And when we anchor our whole system based on software insights, you end up saying, right, based on this income, this behavior, this person, and it's got nothing to do with how that person thinks and feels internally. And that's how you end up with 98.81% of ads don't get interacted with because we're making endless assumptions right across the board. I mean, I could keep going on with the whim stuff. What do you think? I'm often flabbergasted by how the whims of leadership can waste so much money, time, resource, and opportunity. I'm reminded of that uh, advert years back that won dozens and dozens of awards. And it was the, I think it was Honda, and they had all those engine parts bouncing around and it was animated and it was a beautiful advert. Um, but sales didn't go up. And you, you have to ask the question, what, why is it there is so much emphasis on creative when actually the purpose of advertising is to sell stuff? And uh, I, I know that you've had some experiences where the leaders of marketing organizations had uh, a yen for a particular idea and they pushed that without really understanding their customer. And it was costing them millions. So why did they allow themselves to do that? Uh, it's a great question. I mean, you've got a lot of generational thinking that goes on in different markets, right? To use your car and automotive example, the thing that I speak a lot about to both my clients and prospects and just the market in general is that the automotive industry has got caught selling car metal engine, car metal engine, car metal engine price. Right. And so what you've basically got is a huge investment in the upfront, like the TV advert that you spoke about. Right. So the yeah. big, expensive one and they do all the tests and they say, right, this is driving emotion. People are excited about it. But to use your Honda example, sales actually don't go up. And it's because what sits underneath it is you can have a lovely advert and that can trigger people to have a reaction. But it's then what is the person actually wanting that's going to make them consider your car, your service, the things that sit around it. And what happens is that we've got a big ticket TV advert. And then what we move into is car metal engine price, car metal engine price. And the, the joke that I always make is that one of the variables that matters to people is a cup holder. Another variable that matters to a certain female audience is being able to see outside the opposite window for parallel parking, because most cars are designed by men and they don't account for the fact that uh, most women are slightly shorter than men, right? Two examples of variables. Are they going to be the main reasons why people do or don't buy a car? No, absolutely not. But if they're not in the experience and you're not triggering the person to say, we've got you covered for parallel parking, we've got a light up cup holder. If you don't cover those things, then you're not giving people what they want to consider your product. And that's where we are. It's like big ticket advertising followed by, we're assuming that you're at the end game and ready to buy. And there's very little in the middle. No matter what you might think, I can, I can tell you hand on heart, having worked with 78 different brands, there's very little strategic work that goes on in the middle because the, the reason being is that nobody understands that they're doing anything wrong because they don't know what their customers are looking for. They don't know that the cup holder matters. They don't know that parallel parking matters. 
Well, we, we see this all the time, certainly in my world. We, we see salespeople make assumptions and they attribute their success to the wrong things. So when they have a win, they don't understand why the real reason they won is, uh, what the real reason is. Um, and when they lose, they normally attribute it to the wrong thing. They attribute it to price, to our collateral, to our management, our whatever. Um, and the net result of that is that uh, you end up not being able to replicate success. But what you seem to do rather well is replicate your mistakes. So why is there such a huge gap in the attribution uh, model? So it's a great one for me. The attribution model is such a bugbear for me. And for anyone that doesn't understand uh, what we mean by the attribution model, it's very similar to the accounting model, LIFO and FIFO, last in, first out, first in, first out, right? Um, what it basically means is that the attribution model is, is how people try to understand the effort that their advertising and marketing is making, right? So for example, you've got last click is one attribution model. And it basically says that if Marcus is going to buy, he went through four different steps. So he might have read a piece of content, then he was on our website, then he saw a social media post, then he saw an advert, right? And because he saw the advert, and that was the last thing that he did, we attribute 80% of our effort towards the last click. Then you've got another attribution model that's based on first click. Exactly the same, but the first interaction that Marcus had with this product or service or brand, we attribute to 80%. And then you've got things like customized versions, you've got data-driven, you've got a linear model, you've got a time decay model. Basically, anytime you come across something where there's tons of different models for it, it means that nobody knows what it works. <laughs> the reason why the attribution model is a bugbear for me is that within the industry, and our, our four years of R&D included spending time and or analyzing 65 different agencies, right? Some of the world's largest agencies, some of the smallest ones, all the different disciplines, everything you could imagine. And everybody in the agency world jokes about the house of cards. They're, they're basically crapping themselves all the time. And everybody says and makes the joke that, I'm sure you've heard the quote before, but 50% of our advertising doesn't work. We just don't know which half it is. Right? And the attribution model is proof of that. Nobody knows what the effort is. Why does it happen? Um, you could apply it exactly the same way that you spoke about the individual salesperson making assumptions, right? When you put a collection of people together and you turn them into a company, they behave just like an individual does. They make assumptions, they operate in silos, and nobody wants to raise the hand and say what we're doing isn't working because it means that you risk getting fired or you have to have proof of it. And that's really the stage that we're at. I believe that what the digital economy has exposed us to is more of the truth. The data and the software is exposing the fact that humans don't understand humans. It's not a software or a technology or a modern issue. We're just seeing more proof behind it. But I do also believe that the biggest problem the market and advertising industry has created is they over-specialized. The best example I had from a chairman in the industry was once, once advertising and media separated themselves to be separate agencies, that's been the biggest cause of problems and why most brands are now in-housing services because they're seeing more of the truth. Interesting. Okay. So we've got a gap with sentiment. We've got a gap with attribution. There's a yeah. creative gap. What's the programmatic gap? Programmatic is an interesting one. So programmatic is what I call stalker advertising, right? So, so it's when you go on a website and you look at a piece of clothing or something, right? And then when you go on to another website to read an article and stuff, that, that product starts appearing. You know, it kind of follows you everywhere. That's generally what programmatic yeah. is. And 
Um, we've spoken about 98.81% of digital ads don't get interacted with. Now, that's $265 billion a year, and that is a combination of um, Google Display, Facebook Advertising, and Programmatic, right? If you separate Programmatic completely, it actually gets 0.035%. So it doesn't even get a 1% click-through rate. And the biggest problem you've got with Programmatic is exactly the problem that we were just speaking about. So it's a great question, Marcus. Programmatic, and I spent time with some of the, the UK's foremost programmatic agencies, right? And I was absolutely stunned. They separate data and creative. So a conversation I had with them, uh, we were working on, it happened to be a car company uh, as well. We, we work right across the board, but cars keep coming up a lot today. Working on a car company, I said, right, the problem that you've got and what we're seeing is that the creative is missing X, Y, and Z, right? And this is one of the number one programmatic companies in the UK. And they said, yeah, but we have a, we can't change that. I said, what do you mean you can't change it? And they said, well, we've got a, a partnership with a creative partner. And I said, so you're not using data to inform creative and creative's not informing data. And they said, no, why would we do that? And I, I was just absolutely stunned by it. So basically... Sorry, say that again? So, so they separate data and creative, right? Yeah. And programmatic is basically an infrastructure system, right? So they're, they're basically data engineers. And when they find success with their data, they don't use that data to inform the creative. And the creative doesn't inform the data. So imagine a scenario where you find out, like what you were speaking about, let's say that um, we've got 15,000 people that are interested in a, in a Hyundai, but that Hyundai must be red and it must have a cup holder that lights up, right? So you'd want to put that in the creative, right? You've just identified an opportunity. Yeah. And that's not that's not how the system works. The system that, that's like saying I burnt my hand, so I'm not gonna put my hand on the hot stove, but fuck it, I'm just gonna put my hand on the hot stove again. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Even deeper than that, that's programmatic as one example, right? That's exactly the same issue that the the advertising the media created, right? So now when I pre when I present my TV adverts, right, to my clients, so I'm an advertising agency, here's my TV adverts, right? Then that client then goes to its media agency and the media agency does the placement of those adverts. And there's very little conversation between the two. And everybody will cry and say, oh, no, we interact and stuff like that. And it's bullshit, pardon my French, but it's, it's absolute nonsense because you've got large advertising groups like Omnicom um, and WPP have both published articles and pieces of PR saying we're trying to get our agencies to interact together and bid on things together. But the agency world is just as siloed as the divisions inside a company. Uh, right. Okay. But this now comes back down to basic human attachment and ego, because I, I've spent mm -hmm. a lot of my working life working with agencies. And what you've just described here is just classic attachment. They're attached to doing things in a particular way. And one of my favorite posters on my uh, old office wall was a picture of the Pamplona bull run. It said tradition, just because you've always done it that way doesn't mean it's not incredibly stupid. Brilliant. And the reality is that people do not buy the way marketers or salespeople think they do. The research that uh, one of my pals, Bob Mester, has done is breathtaking and it's refreshing. He's come up with this demand-led sales approach. And it's all about understanding how the customer goes through decision-making, the first thing that happens is they have a first thought and they start making space for an idea or for a change. And that could happen two, three, four, five years before. And then 
over time, they start looking passively and, you know, they come across an article or they see a piece of content or whatever, and they start um, learning how things are done. And then eventually they move into active looking as the problem starts to frustrate them. And then they start seeing possibilities. And when they see those possibilities, then they start making a decision by what they disqualify because they're making trade-offs. Do I have it in red or do I have it in crimson? Do I have the heated rear window with the, uh, the windscreen wiper or do I just go with the heated rear window and instead I have a visual display on my dashboard? And they make all these decisions and eventually they make the decision having made all those trade-offs and then they use the product. And if the product is allowing them to make progress towards the outcome that they are renting. And this is one of the yeah. things that I think we marketers and salespeople and leadership really need to get through their head. No one ever has or ever will buy your product or your service. They rent it for only as long as it's delivering the outcome that they invested in it for. And if it delivers that outcome, they will continue to invest in it and they will be- start making it their habit. But we have to get a lot savvier as uh, professionals in our space because we've got to stop the idea that anybody wakes up one morning and says, you know, bugger me, what I really want is a CRM system. It just doesn't happen. So why did these traditional beliefs persist and these habits and behaviors persist? Why is it so difficult to break them? I think that the world's caught in in the, the kind of source code the source code's a little bit broken. And what I mean by the source code is the thinking model. How we think about how other humans think is the biggest gap. And I don't believe that I'm sitting here talking about something that's particularly new. I just think that as a society, as a business society, we've lost our way a little bit. Because if you go back to the golden age of advertising, from the 1930s through the 1950s, on Madison Avenue, market research was done by a psychologist. A psychologist was an employee. And bear in mind, I'm not, I'm not a psychologist. I, I, I do a lot of weird stuff with math, right? So I'm not trying to sell what I, my service or anything like that. What, I'm at, what I am saying is that back in the day when advertising worked really, really well, they had a psychologist doing the market research. And I'll come back to that point, but let's fast forward to now. When I did all that, that research, the four years of R&D, one of the key things that came up was that I was trying to hunt the truth of market research. So is market research the same as sentiment analysis? That was my theory about it. And I spent some time with the chairman of one of the world's largest advertising groups. And he told me that he had the same suspicion about market research. And he went out and got budget and recruited three people from that industry because he wanted to find out the truth. And the truth was that they're just dipping into a library. They're dipping into a library of past insights. So what they're doing is actually based on a whim as well. right? So what we've done is, is again, over-specialized things. But what market research has done is basically, it's kind of like a McKinsey model. You sell something for a million bucks with a bunch of senior people in the room, then you send in a bunch of kids, right? If you ever want a great analysis of the McKinsey model, read, read uh, Grit by Angela Duckworth, fantastic book. And Dangerous right? my Company point, by Charlie Madigan. Right, you could. And these are great examples, right? And what they found out was that market research was based on the whim. So, so somebody made the decision, then they went into a library. So what they were basically doing was throwing Honda or somebody else insights about fiat because they'd done something else with fiat. It wasn't accurate to now. Whereas what they used to do in the past, the market research, 
was done by the psychologist whose job at the time was to understand what the buyer wanted. And in the consumer world, the buyer was the female. That was the person that had control of the household. And I don't mean that in a, in a kind of classic 1950s housewife type way. It was just a much better model. That was the control of how it worked. And I'm not suggesting that we go back to a female-only model, but I am suggesting we go back to a model that says, who is our customer and how can we understand them? Because spending 75 to 125K on market research and sentiment analysis only to find out you're not getting any answers about your customers is completely pointless. It strikes me that sales and marketing are failing in asking themselves better questions, which is why they're not getting better answers. What are the questions that sales and marketing leadership really need to be asking themselves so that they're no longer throwing good money after bad, laboring under the ludicrous belief that selling and marketing are a numbers game? What are the questions that we should be asking ourselves? Why does our customer buy? What are we actually trying to, to give them? What reward are they hunting? And the reward is the, of the hundreds of pieces of IP, and we've got over 300 algorithms and 296 part model of decision making. And the thing that I always go to every single time is what problem are you solving? Right? If you understand what problem you're solving, you're, you're starting to interrogate into why your customers buy. Because in a consumer world, the reason why somebody's buying something is, is everything to do with neurobiology, what I call neuro rewards, right? 95% of all of our decisions are based on emotions, and those emotions are, are connected into the reward center in our brain. So when we get rewarded, we're getting a chemical release, right? So we humans are very addictive creatures. Like, if you, can, if you could ever answer, like, there's a billion-dollar clothing company we're working with whose functional reason why people bought their product was because it fits me. I'm not kidding you. That's what it was. That was their core global strategy, because it fits me. And I'm like, well, if you're, if you're actually operating on the basis that you think people buy clothes because it fits them, you're missing the point, right? Like, why is it that we need to replace clothing after a certain length of time? And everybody's a little bit different, right? That clothing might be shoes. It might be cars. It might be a combination of all those different things. But the brain is set up to reward itself in so many different ways. And shopping taps into that type of reward that we're doing. So um, are you familiar with the circadian system for how we regulate, how the brain regulates being awake and sleeping? Uh, I am, but uh, explain it. Yeah, so, so it's, I mean, it's that simple, really. Like the brain, the brain has a circadian system. So the reason why we find jet lag hard is we're basically knocking the system out of whack. So it's suddenly having to change how it sleeps. And then when we get home, we have to change that system back again. So for some of us, like if I travel to the States and come back again, I generally swap a meal. So I ended up I'm generally at the fridge at like midnight for like three months after a trip, uh, <laughs> just eating at that time, right? That's just a circadian system. One of the things that, that I've worked on, and I'd love it to be one of my future books, is the circadian system of shopping. Because if you think about the logic of it, when you buy a product that you really like, eventually you replace it. It's kind of like a half-life of a, of, a, of a metal or something, right? The first time you wear it, you love it. The 15th time you wear it, you don't love it as much. It depends what that item is. But the point is that humans are trying to reward themselves all the time. And whether you're B2B or B2C, you need to start with the question, what problem do I solve? If you understand what problem you solve for the individual, in a B2C sense, you're going to be in the reward center and you're going to be understanding how their brain operates. But in B2B, it's just as important, if not even more. Because it's less about the business mindset and more about the buyer's mindset. 
Like every software solves a piece of problem for somebody. It might be quicker reporting, it might be better stats, it might be performance, but there's a reason why the buyer is going to pick Salesforce versus Marquesis or whoever, right? Okay, talk to us about the reward system because I think if people understand the biochemistry of the brain at a high level, it will start, all the pieces will start to slot into place. If you think about, if you think about the last time you had a really good experience in an email, right? An email that you got from a brand. Can you think of a good experience that you had with that anytime? Um, in all honesty, they're very few and far between, but I'd say Gong. Gong does a really good job. Very true. Very true. Gong does some really good stuff. And does it, thinking about what Gong does, is it, and knowing you as I do, Marcus, is it because it, it confirms something you've been thinking about because it gives you a new lens of knowledge or why do you enjoy what they send you? Sometimes it's confirming, but often one of my favorite bits of research that they did was around swearing in the sale. And uh, the research suggests that the evidence uh, points to the fact that if the prospect swears before the salesperson does in the sale, uh, I think it's a 21% higher probability of conversion. And if the salesperson swears before the prospect does against uh, the control group of no one swearing, there's an 8% higher conversion rate. And, and so that, that was, first of all, it affirmed my view on life because I tend to swear quite a lot. But secondly, uh, it was just an interesting bit of research and it made me smile. And it also opened up a line of inquiry for me as to why that was the case. And I came to a conclusion. So it fed a, a theory of mine that if either side or both sides swear and both sides are comfortable with it, then there must be good rapport. Right. Love it. Right. And so for everybody listening to this, what we were just getting an insight from was the fact that Marcus has got some fun in the system. He likes a little bit of cheek, but he's very driven by knowledge. And that knowledge allows him to take a snippet of information and to build a story around it because he's a storyteller, because he's a, because he's a trainer, because he's an innovator, because he coaches people, right? Like he understands how humans think and he's very triggered by stories about that, right? Because that enriches how he thinks and understands himself, right? That's the type of reward that he's looking for from Gong and to an extent from any type of B2B sales interaction, right? We've now got an understanding of the type of reward that Marcus is looking for. It's about how you present yourself to people. And what Marcus's brain is looking for is the same as what my brain is looking for and the same as everybody else. We make 35,000 decisions a day and the vast majority of them never leave our unconscious mind, right? The ones that do is the relevant ones. Gong. When that email comes in, Marcus will be triggered by the fact that it's gone. If it's got an interesting title, he's going to be triggered again. He's going to open it. If it's got an interesting story, he's going to be triggered again. Three times we've just given him a neuro reward. He's had the chemical release three times. When he takes that story and starts repeating it, he's had even more chemical releases. My point about it is that that is how you create relevance in a system. And less than 2% of those 35,000 decisions you make a day are going to be conscious. When they are conscious, it's the example that I gave you where Marcus is being rewarded. He's getting chemical releases because the content is relevant to him. The world is less about brand and shoving product down people's throats. 
It needs to be relevant product. It needs to be the story of the product. It needs to be the gains of the product. It needs to be how other customers are gaining in a similar way. People like me, which I always say in inverted commas because it's less about age and ethnicity and more about the emotional gains that people are looking for. And that's really the core of the gap that we've been speaking about today is like you've got to make what you do relevant to people. And it starts by understanding what problem do I solve? And why do people buy from me? And they're, they're just a beautiful connection of two simple questions, right? But how much have we got from doing it? This then comes back to a theme. So I was working with uh, one of my client's sales teams yesterday, and we're really trying to sort out their prospecting. And the question came back, how do I engage with the C-suite? And it's actually pretty simple. You need to be timely. You need to be relevant and you need to leave them with value. If, you, yep. if you're not timely, relevant, and valuable, then what right have you got to interrupt their day? And so how do you create that kind of messaging? So I'd like to explore how you build that architecture and the kind of research that we need to do. Because I think far too many people just smile and dial. Um, yep. And in fact, most of them avoid the, the smiling and the dialing. But if they eventually do, then they pick up the phone and they just randomly interrupt people. So what advice would you give to people when they're trying to architect the framework for their marketing and then for their prospecting activity, particularly in the B2B space? Because that's really the, uh, the audience that we're uh, speaking to today. Again, great question. The irony is that we need to make it less about our product and service, right? This is my whole thing about what the digital economy is, is forced upon us a bit too much is that the whole world, not just marketing, but the, the nuance, the idea of performance marketing is starting to seep into everything, right? So we're KPIs, we're OKRs. It's very capitalist how it's led, right? And what that does is it forces our brain into what we call end game thinking. And end game thinking is, okay, if I talk about my product and my service and my price enough, then I'll get two out of 100 people will come back to me, right? Whereas what we need to look at, and to answer your question, is you need to put some simple things in place which we call gains and reward architecture. So what are the gains of my interaction with this person from their perspective? What reward am I going to give them from this interaction? That's those two really simple things. If you put that architecture in place, it starts to give you the value that you're speaking about. But beyond anything else, it's a positive thinking mechanism. And we're constantly working on things like that because if you think about you're sitting down with that company, that client that you're just speaking about, Marcus, you're sitting down with them tomorrow and you say, right, we're going to look at what we're going to do for C-level engagement. We already spoke about value. Now what I want you to do is to take what that value is and look at what is the gain that you're going to offer somebody and what's the reward for interacting with you. Not what's the reward for taking a meeting with you, not what's what the reward for the services, just literally what is the gain and the reward for interacting with you right now. And I find that that just triggers people to, it's almost like a release to be more personal, add a little bit of personality to it, stop being less of a robot. Like we're almost forcing humans to automate themselves like their software because we godify software so much. And I'm a huge fan of software. It's not that I'm anti-technology. We're just talking about how to engage humans for the, the, the reality of who they are, which is that they're human. They think, they feel. We've got to treat them with a little bit of, nuance, a little bit of charisma, a little bit of creativity, you know? Well, I've been selling now for 35, 36 years. And throughout my career, I've learned various tactics and technique, and I've learned about product. 
And I've got to be honest with you, none of that has been of any significant value. The stuff that's really been powerful has been understanding human beings, understanding myself. And that's the starting point. Because if you don't understand what makes you tick, then chances are you're going to have a filter that biases all of your activity. Your intent is really important. And Martin pointing to that fact there, uh, that you need to understand what value, what reward, what gain is that individual going to get from interacting with you now is really key. And if you don't focus on understanding them and you don't build your products, your proposition, your marketing, your sales activity from the users, what, what are the jobs that they're trying to do? What progress are they trying to make? Where are they struggling? Um, How do they describe those situations? If you don't start with that, then chances are you're going to start applying technique and do a move on someone. Um, And no one likes having being manipulated. No one likes being tricked into a buying decision. They need to know that your intent is that you are there to help, to serve. And they want to be understood. They want to be heard. But above all, I believe, and this uh, I, I learned through my work with Mark Goulston, is all human beings want to know that someone else feels what they feel. If you as a seller are picking up the phone and you don't understand that you're dealing with a busy executive who's making those 35,000 decisions in a day, and you're not relevant, you're not timely, you're not valuable, then what they're feeling is, how quickly can I get this idiot off the phone? As opposed to, ah, this is something I need to pay attention to. So we've got to get a lot smarter in our approach. And we've got to stop selling and marketing selfishly because no one cares about our ugly children. They don't care about our products. They don't care about our services. They don't care about our company. They don't care about our investors. And I guarantee they don't want to see a photograph of your HQ. So help me understand this. You've got all of these different pieces of IP. You've got 386 algorithms, whatever. And you're using all these different psychological disciplines. How can somebody who doesn't have access to all of that make a simple start? in order to ensure that they are relevant, timely, and valuable? It's a great question. We're at the start of a new year, right? So our minds are, our minds are open for a very small amount of time to potential change for ourselves, right? And I'll give you the most positive change you can do, and you already touched on it, Marcus, is that we humans make assumptions. We make assumptions because the brain operates on what I call the efficiency trick, right? It needs to automate as much as possible. It's been doing it since the day that you were born. Most of your decision-making, most of your behavior, most of your habits is locked in your system by the time you're 14. You make some some adjustments in terms of sexualizing the brain and things like that from 14 to 21. Thereafter, you will not change unless you go through something very deep and very traumatic. Your change is very marginal. Your fashion might change and stuff like that. But really, the brain wants to keep you locked in. So this idea that your personality, that your DNA is fixed, is not actually as as true as what you might think. It's actually just the chronology about how the brain works. It just wants to repeat things, right? So being selfish is not necessarily a bad thing. I don't mean it in a bad way. It's just a a natural part of the human brain, right? 
the way that you can pull yourself out of it because it's causing you problems in your marketing, in your sales, in anything that involves other humans is causing you problems, is to interrogate your habit loop. And your habits are really simple. We've got millions of them, right? So when we were allowed in the office, the favorite example I give is that 10.05, your friend walks onto your floor. That's your trigger. You get up and you go and follow your routine where you make yourself a cup of coffee and you grab yourself a muffin. And your actual reward is not the coffee or the muffin. It's actually the social interaction with your friend. That's why we're feeling so much more stressed during COVID and stuff, right? Because we're missing out on all these little social cues we used to get. But the point about it is that every habit has got a trigger, routine, and a reward within it. If you just give yourself time to pause and say, before I make that phone call, before I write that email out to my clients and everything else, it's just saying, why am I doing this? What is it based on? Is it based on a truth? Is it based on why my customers buy? Is it based on the reward they want? Is it based on giving their customers a gain? Or is my brain just automated a habit the same as tying my shoelaces? And what you'll find is that it's based on tying your shoelaces. And once we stop that and we just look at different ways to do it, that's when you can find immediate success. And some of the biggest successes we've had is just by getting people to pause and getting them to look at the world slightly differently. And it just starts by just looking inside and saying, why am I doing it this way? And you'll realize the reason why you're doing it is really silly. And once you change the silly to be more customer focused, then you're going to win. That's it. Well, one of the observations that I've made from working with some of the best salespeople and managers on the planet is they do spend time on reflection. Right. Uh, they're very introspective. They take time looking in the ugly mirror, recognizing, documenting and recognizing their behaviors and their habits. Many of them keep a journal. Many of them capture lessons in writing. And they keep asking themselves better questions. One of my favorite habits is that of affirmations. Most people know mm-hmm. about an affirmation where you're trying to convince mm-hmm. yourself that you know, you're uh, going to lose weight. So mine would be, it's the 16th of September, 2021. I'm 10 stone five. I eat healthily. I exercise every day and I no longer smoke. Now, there's a little voice in my head that says, no, you're not, you fat bastard. Um, so that doesn't work for me. Um, but what does work really well is an affirmation, which is what can I do to, and with a time component. So what can I do to be more relevant to my prospect on this call? What can I do to deliver value to my customers on a daily basis? What can I do immediately to improve the quality and consistency of my sales pipeline? And it's important to ask the question and have a time component. And then let your unconscious mind do the heavy lifting for you. So I like to ask these questions to myself before I go to sleep. Because then I've got three, four hours while I uh, sleep uh, for my unconscious mind to come up with the idea. Then I wake up about three o'clock in the morning with a genius attack, and then I have to write it down, and then I can go back to sleep again. Now, the challenge, I think, for a lot of us is that we don't like to look in the ugly mirror. We're uncomfortable challenging ourselves because we may come up wanting. But I think one of the key qualities of the best uh, performers in any walk of life is vulnerability. It's the willingness to recognize that you are not the finished article, that you have flaws, and that you have room for improvement. So I think Martin's idea of asking yourself the question, why am I being selfish? Why am I doing this? Is a really good one. Tell me this. If you look at 
the state of the marketing industry today. Mm -hmm. What are your hopes for this year uh, in terms of what they will catch on to and what they will stop doing, which will dramatically improve the outcomes for their customers? I think the biggest thing is relevance, really, that we have to recognize that if 98.81% of our adverts aren't working, let's just stop spending as much money and start focusing on how we can spend less money to get better results by giving different people the actual products and services that they're actually looking for. And that, that comes to back to the rewards and stuff as well. So it's funny. I mean, COVID is forcing people's hands anyway, but I'm basically saying to people, you can accomplish more by spending less. You've just got to invest more time as part of that money saving. Well, one of the areas that I see being desperately wanting in the marketing profession is speaking to customers. I struggle constantly to understand why marketing people don't speak to customers. And the number of times I've had conversations with marketers and I say, well, how often do you speak to customers? Oh, never. What the hell is going on there? I think it's because people don't know what questions to ask. They don't know why they would be speaking to customers. It comes back to the same thing. If we don't know why our customers buy, then what on earth are we going to gain from speaking to them? So it's just, it's a bit of a false economy. Nobody actually knows what they're supposed to be doing. So the theory makes sense. We can find out things from our customers, but if we don't know what to ask them in the first place, then we're never going to find out what, what problem it is that we're trying to solve. So that's why people just kind of give up with it, I think. Well, uh, I mean, my interview with Martin Lindstrom was very enlightening on that basis. You know, he, he, he spends, pre-COVID, he was spending, I think it was about 290 days a year inside other people's homes, okay. observing how they interact with their products day to day. And speaking to them, but also listening to them. And I think that's something that's really sadly lacking both in the sales and marketing professions, that we don't listen well. So what advice would you give there? I think that listening comes back to the question that you need to ask, really. Like we've had a lot of success. There's a jewelry client that comes to mind that we had 42% uh, increase on Black Friday versus Black Friday sales recently. And what we were doing was, was asking customers a question about why they bought, what they were interested in. So basically extracting their story and then showing it to people that were like them. So it was just a nice repeating cycle for it. So again, it comes down to like social listening is, is a false economy. It's like, um, it's like sentiment analysis. It doesn't work. It's just false, you know. I just think there's better ways to do it. And I think people just have to pause and think about what they're doing. It comes back to that selfishness again. What do you understand? So what are those better ways, just in case I'm being a bit thick? I think the better ways are, are just understanding, going back to, because there's tons of different ways I could speak about it, but the gains and rewards, what problem do I solve? Understand what problem you solve and everything can be, can be built around there. So that's where I would start. So I've spent the last 17 years with a view, which I'm changing as a result, largely of our work together, that people move away from pain more than they move towards pleasure. Now, I think it's important to understand the cause of someone's pain, because if you don't solve the problem at its cause, then chances are you're going to struggle to make that problem go away forever. But I fundamentally believe that the gains element is really important. People buy the outcome. They don't buy the move away from the pain. They, move the, uh, they buy the outcome. And that's what I think you're talking about in terms of giving them the gains so that they get the neurological reward. What advice would you give to salespeople 
where they have come from this uh, history of doing a really good, strong pain discovery without building in the gains element. The most common thing is that they can do pain discovery, but I, I guarantee that the vast majority of their pain discovery is about the business, not the buyer. You've got to get inside the buyer's mindset about what problem they're actually trying to solve. And the advice I always give software businesses in particular, clients or otherwise, is that it's generally about quicker reporting, doing things for them that their supplier currently doesn't, just making their life easier and some degree of automation of reporting. It's often that simple because the human wants more control. And if you make their life easier, then who are they going to pick, you or their existing supplier? It's that simple. I'd go deeper than that from my experience because I think you have to have, you, you find the pain at an intellectual level. And that's the problem. Then you need to look deeper and deeper and deeper. And you go to the team, to the individual, and then the personal impact that it's having on an individual. And what the gain is that they're going to achieve. Is it going to be that by being able to report more efficiently, they're going to free up time? I mean, one of the things that I learned last year from Michael Brody Waite is that on average, a leader's inability to say no is costing them 31 hours a month. That's nearly a full week. It's, it's 75% of a full week every single month just because they don't know how to say no. Now, the opportunity cost of that means that they're having to work longer hours. They don't spend their time with their families or they could be spending it on higher value activities because they don't know how to set boundaries and how to say no. And so. When we're working with our clients, I think what we need to do is we need to understand very clearly what the payoff is. And often it's very simple stuff, but it's those opportunity costs that can then allow them to deliver more value, to make progress, to achieve greater advancement towards their outcomes. So I'd like to wrap up on that. So Martin, thank you. This, this has been, again, insightful as usual. And I'm looking forward to our continuing relationship and working together. How can people get hold of you? Uh, LinkedIn or Martin at gapinthematrix.com or they can do, I do one free problem solving for any size of business. And I tend to find it's big business that reach out for me with this. They can WhatsApp me on 07743482437. That's WhatsApp 07743482437. So I'll do the first problem for free. Excellent. Martin Lucas, thank you. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And please make notes and come back with comments. If you've got questions for either myself or Martin, then feel free to get in touch. And if you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone who would be, then please get in touch at marcus at laughs-last.com or contact me on LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.